0: Good morning. Please open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And though we'll be looking and focusing on verses 3 through 11, I will start reading in chapter 12, verse 1. 1 through 11. Hear now the living and active word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us and ask now... That as we come before your word, Lord, you would use it to train and discipline us. Engage our hearts by your word, effectually by your spirit. Working in us a faithfulness so that we, your people, might give praise to you, our triune God. We ask this not in and of ourselves, but Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Hebrews, if you remember how the author described the book in chapter 13, verse 22, he says that this entire book is really one long exhortation. Do you remember that? It's a sermon. It's a sermon, of course, about the supremacy and preeminency of Jesus Christ, why Jesus Christ is better than everything that came before him in the Old Covenant, but it's also a sermon where its major exhortation its its takeaway point is to endure. Don't give up. Why? Well, because the people he's writing to have been tempted to give up, to turn back from following after Jesus Christ. They were ethnically ethnically Jewish men and women who have heard and believed the gospel. They've been baptized. They're now gathered together as a local church, following after and living their lives together for Jesus. And that new reality has caused them not a little bit of hardship. We read in Hebrews 10, verse 32 and 33, how, quote, after they were enlightened, that is, after they were born again, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those in prison, even having their property plundered, can you imagine going to bed at night and wondering, will the mob or the government surround my house and take my family off to prison, plunder my property? So you see, their temptation, right? Their struggle was to perhaps turn away, to become apostate, to leave the faith and turn away from Jesus and back to that easier life where there was no more persecution, no more hardship. And what the author has been doing is. And calling them to endure. We saw last week, didn't we? We saw in verses one and two of this chapter how they, and and likewise how we, were encouraged to persevere, to endure by looking both to all the saints that have gone before us and and be encouraged by their enduring, to also look to Jesus, who himself persevered and endured to the end. And this morning, our author continues that theme of endurance, but looking at it from a different perspective. He's holding up the the diamond gem of endurance. And this morning, as he he turns that diamond in the sunlight, we begin to see another facet of what it means to endure. This morning, we're going to see that enduring faith endures not only through hardships and struggles, but actually that enduring faith requires hardships and struggles. And here's the wild thing. Our author wants to actually encourage us with this truth. He wants our hearts to find strength in the fact that a life marked with different kinds of sufferings and hardships is actually the means God uses to help us endure. I know it sounds so counterintuitive. We think so often that suffering and hardships are the barriers that often cause us to not endure. We need strength to get through suffering And in one real sense, yes, that is right. But what I find so encouraging in this passage is that God also uses those same barriers, those moments of trials and pain and suffering, those instances that so often cause people to want to give up, and he uses them to actually bring about the opposite effect in those whom he loves. God uses suffering to help us endure through suffering. He uses trials to help us persevere through trials. This actually isn't some like weird deep outer space idea. It's all over the place in the scriptures. We see this truth in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, says James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under and through that trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We see this truth in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then Paul says this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We know that for those who love God, Paul says all things, all suffering works together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50 when he confronts them years later after they sinfully sold him into slavery? And for years he suffered as a slave and in prison. But here he was now as the second most powerful man in the known world. And as he looks at his brothers, he says with the wisdom that I imagine only age and godliness can bring. He says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the truth we see here this morning. The surprising truth of God's sovereign grace to preserve and keep us through suffering by using that suffering. As we look at the passage before us, I think we'll see four directives, four encouragements on how this works. First, the author tells us to consider. Consider the Son of God who himself underwent suffering and yet he still endured. Do you see that in verses 3 and 4? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here's perhaps one of the more profound truths of the gospel that our author is bringing out to help us see his point. And the point is this. Consider Jesus, the Son of God himself, who in his life, here as a man, also underwent suffering... But realize this, all that suffering was purposeful in his life. There was divine purpose behind every bit of suffering which Jesus experienced his entire life. And this is not new to the book of Hebrews. The author has been weaving this truth throughout this exhortation. Look back in chapter 2, in verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10, he reminds us there that it was fitting for God to make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. That's a wild passage to consider. If you remember, he wasn't saying that Jesus as the divine son was imperfect and and then only later through suffering became fully perfect and divine. That's not what he meant. That's nonsensical and an impossibility. The son as God is in and of himself always perfect. So what does he mean then that God the Father made Jesus perfect through suffering? Well, he means that as a man, Jesus grew in favor with the Father. And specifically, Jesus grew in his trust and reliance upon the Father as he walked through wave after wave of trials and hardships and sufferings. So that it was there in his human nature, in his humanly suffering, that he grew in his faith and faithfulness. He grew in his reliance. And specific to our point here, he grew in his endurance. The Gospel of Luke tells us that as a young boy, Jesus grew and became strong, being filled with wisdom. And then he specifically says that Jesus increased in favor, under the gracious favor of God. Well, here the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. But, But now from a different perspective, from the perspective of how. How did Jesus grow in favor with God? How did he grow in faithfulness? And he says it was through suffering. Consider Hebrews chapter 5. Turn to Hebrews 5. And look there at the passage that we looked at a couple months ago in verses 7, 8, and 9. Hebrews 5, 7, 8, and 9, where our author picks up the same argument, I think. He says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Even though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What was the result of this? Verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you see what's going on here? There's this theme, this gospel truth that Jesus' perfection as our mediator was precipitated by his sufferings. Jesus was fitted to become our Savior only in and through the sufferings he endured. And what does all this have to do then with how we are suffering? I think it's this. As Jesus grew in favor with the Father, learning obedience through what he suffered, well then so too is God fitting us for heaven by teaching us obedience through what we suffer. The passage will go on to show us how this is really God's love towards us. But all he's saying here is, consider Jesus. Consider him whom the Father loves supremely. Wow, God also loves us as sons. In him, the Son. And through pains and trials, he will grow us up into conformity with him. The Apostle Peter says, I think, the same thing in 1 Peter 4. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. If anyone suffers as a Christian, says Peter, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The first thing we see then is that God was growing Jesus and strengthening Jesus through suffering. And as we consider and and look to him our head, but we too can see God's wise hand in every trial and every pain and, and, and every uh, bit of suffering that comes our way. And how he uses it for our good as we endure through it. And the second thing we're called to do is to remember. Remember the word of God about the father's discipline. Look there in verses 5 and 7. well, because of Jesus Christ, our suffering has purpose. We've seen that. It's in line with who we are in him. But secondly, he wants us to not forget that the Bible has already spoken to us. And he quotes here from Proverbs chapter 3, where we're told explicitly that God disciplines his sons, that the Bible tells us that we're to suffer in him. He disciplines those whom he loves. Notice quickly how he introduces this passage from Proverbs. Do you see that in verse 5? He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? In other words, he's reminding them again that that by being in Jesus, by being believers in Jesus and thus being in spiritual union with Jesus, they are now seen as sons. And what this does is, I think, immediately shift their perspective. It shifts their perspective from seeing all their suffering and all their trials as not just coming from God but actually seeing all their suffering as coming from God, their Father. That's a huge difference. You know why? Because if they're only seeing their situation from the standpoint of being under the control of God as God, well, then the temptation is to think, perhaps I'm suffering because, well, God is upset at me. You see? Perhaps this persecution is a sign of God's judgment evidence of his divine displeasure, and all this is his just retribution and punishment for my sin. But that's not where the author goes. No, he says, God has spoken to you as sons. And in verse 7, he he repeats that. He says, God is treating you as sons. And this is that amazing reminder that all judgment, all punishment has already been dealt with and propitiated in Jesus Christ, the Son. Because of that, because of the cross on which the son already died and took the penalty for our sins, well, now God works in your life no longer as a judge and certainly not as some kind of divine warden looking for sins to punish. No, he sees you now as His son and he your loving father. What does that do? It, it, It shifts the way we see our suffering. It shifts the perspective on how we view our trials. As children of God, we'll recognize that that all our suffering is not because God has abandoned us, and it's certainly not because he's punishing us. No, it's because the Lord loves us, and he's training us, and he's using all things to grow us into maturity as his sons. Here we see that in Jesus Christ, the darkness and the pain of suffering has been transformed and incorporated into this idea of fatherly discipline. Do you see that? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. What I think we need to see here is that when he speaks of discipline, again, it's not simply this idea of if I sin, then the Lord brings bad times to discipline and reprove me. I think it's more than that. It's bigger than that. The emphasis here is that the Lord disciplines everyone he loves. He even asks the question rhetorically in verse 7, right? He says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And the answer is that he disciplines every son. And as we've seen already, even with Jesus Christ, the Lord used suffering to teach him obedience. So that in a very real sense, I think we can say the Father disciplined Jesus Christ. That's why I think we need to say that discipline is bigger than God simply reproving us in our sin. God never reproved Jesus because Jesus never sinned. But he certainly did discipline him. How? I think the idea here is that discipline in its fuller scope should also be seen as as discipling. Or even as verse 11, I think, puts it, as training. God's discipline, then, is not always due to our, our sinfulness or our stubbornness. No, there are times, it seems... When God's fatherly hand of discipline is disciplining us simply through the circumstances of our lives. Not so much to rebuke us, but to fashion us and to shape us for some gracious purpose he has in view for our lives. Paul says this in Second Corinthians 1 where he speaks of the agonies that the Lord walked him through. The afflictions he experienced, but all for the purpose of making him rely not on himself, but to rely more on God who raises the dead. The word discipline in the Greek is the word paideia, which carried with it the idea of education, teaching, training, correction, all this chiefly attained by exhortation or reproof and and even physical discipline. That's the full scope of it, and something that, that all fathers, especially the perfect father, is expected to do. Discipline then is God's good training, his his discipling of us as sons. And in his discipline, he uses every means possible to grow us up into maturity, preserving us till the end. And notice he says God does this because he loves us. It is his love for us that moves him to discipline us. And it's his love for us that moves him to use every means possible to train and mature us. Just a side note, fathers. Love your children. Discipline and train them in in reflection of the perfect father who does that with us. There are many different ways in which the Bible speaks about God's disciplining us. As Sinclair Ferguson has so often stated, it's good that we realize that God doesn't always discipline all his children in exactly the same way. To each son, to each daughter, he has a perfect understanding of how to lovingly, discipline each child. So often God disciplines us through his word. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3:16. He says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And in one sense that's what the author <coughs> of Hebrews is doing right here in verse 5. <coughs> He says, have you forgotten that word of exhortation in Proverbs 3, which addresses you as sons? And then what does he do? Well, he quotes God's word, and he uses it. He uses God's word to teach and to reprove and to train his audience on how to rightly see and endure through suffering. In a very real sense, the act right now of preaching to you is God's discipline and training to your very hearts. God also disciplines us through our consciences often by His Spirit in us bruising our conscience for a season, or perhaps even taking away any sense of assurance so that in fear we might repent and turn back again to Christ, seeking Him in humility and obedience. Our consciences are constantly training and disciplining us to obedience. A very common way for the Father to discipline His children is through the local church. In fact, Jesus Himself gave detailed instruction on what that's to look like, how it's to happen in Matthew 18. There in Matthew 18, we see that if a, if a brother is caught in sin or who is sinning and he's not repenting of it, we're to, we're to go up to that brother or sister and lovingly confront them, asking them and helping them to turn away from that sin. And it seems that that's something that should be happening daily as we live our lives out together within the local church. That's a very normal manner in which the Lord is constantly and daily training us and disciplining us. But what we see here in Hebrews 12 is that God also uses and often does use the sufferings and trials we face as Christians. Specifically here, the persecution that they've been facing as believers. Isn't that a tremendous thought? Here they are as believers, undergoing severe persecution. And it seems like it may actually get worse as they've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, right? Meaning martyrdom. That might be on the horizon. But here, they're suffering for their faith, and, and they're being tempted to give up because of that persecution. And here, the pastor reminds them that that very persecution is being used by God to train you and discipline you and form you into the kind of Christian who can and who will endure. I was thinking last night of uh, the practice of inoculation or Immunization, And I imagine Keith has a lot more to say about this than I ever can. But you understand, right, that uh, for centuries, uh, in order to be immunized or inoculated against some kind of disease, you would oftentimes get a little bit of that disease from somebody who is sick with it and then put it within your blood system, training and, and disciplining your body to, to build up, I guess, uh, antibodies to fight that very disease. Uh, it's something of the same thing going on here. Are you tempted to give up and, and die underneath the weight of suffering and persecution? Okay, then I'll walk you through it and I'll give you suffering and persecution. Well, we've seen how we're to consider the Father's discipline of the Son. We've seen how we're to remember that the Father disciplines us as sons. And I'll thirdly look at how we're to submit to the Father's discipline in verses 7 and 9. 7, 8, and 9. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Here the passage simply applies the truth of what we've seen, but I think takes it a step further. If we're sons of God, and God as our Father loves us in his discipline of us, well then, we ought to submit to his loving discipline. But notice the implications for what he's saying here. If you've not experienced God's discipline, if you haven't participated in the training and discipling of God's loving engagement in your life, using trials and hardships to draw you closer to himself, If you have not known that reality, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's a heavy passage. And one, I think, that ought to make every one of us, at least right now, stop and think and, and as Peter put it, be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. What he's supposing here is that there are people in his church... Because remember, this is a sermon of exhortation. There's there's people listening to this sermon who are in reality not true disciples. They're not being disciplined by God, and thus they're not disciples. They're not sons. They're not true believers. We need to say up front that that's always a reality, isn't it? In every generation, some generations more than others, there are countless people who think that they are Christians but are in fact not Christians. They're illegitimate. And I would be a poor pastor and perhaps a scared preacher if I did not warn you that that very well could be you this morning. Think of the implications. We're tempted today to... To think that all the desires that bubble up from within our hearts, oh, those are good desires. It's just a basic belief, I think, that most people have bought into in our time. And the thinking goes that if all these different desires that, that arise out of my feelings and out of my heart, if they're good, and because they're natural feelings that I have in my heart, then they must be a part of what God wants me to experience and feel and, and indulge in. Basically, God is okay with my feelings and desires. And if I pursue those feelings and indulge in those desires, and and it isn't hurting anyone, and everyone around me is okay with it, and as I pursue those desires and God doesn't stop me, he doesn't cause lightning to come down and strike me, well, then in the end, God must really be okay with me pursuing that desire. But notice what this passage is saying. God disciplines and reproves and chastises those whom he loves. He brings his children back and keeps them from pursuing wrong desires and sinful feelings. So that from the opposite perspective, it's also true to say that for those people who are not God's children, for those people who are under God's judgment, well, for them, he gives them up. He lets them do what they want to do and pursue what they want to pursue. And the effect is that they go on blindly thinking that everything is all right. And and the sins and desires and feelings that they're pursuing, they're, they're okay in the eyes of God because God hasn't done anything. But that's the very judgment. Because God hasn't done anything, you can stand assured that you remain under his divine wrath. That's what grace is, friends. It's God intervening in our lives. Holding us back so often from what our sinful hearts want to do you want to know if you are really his child? If you're really a believer? Then ask yourself this question. When I pursue sin, and we all do, when I pursue sin, do I see God at work, working to discipline me? Does his word convict and discipline me, bringing me to repentance? Does my conscience convict and discipline me, causing me to turn away from sin? Does the church that I'm a part of discipline me, confronting me about my life? Does hardship and pain and suffering work to discipline me, bringing me to rely more upon God and less upon myself? If you can't answer yes to any of those questions, then you are not a disciple, and you need to turn to God now and beg for his forgiveness, asking and begging for his divine grace to intercede in your life as you turn away from sin and turn toward his Son. The evidence of God's grace in your life is his involvement. He's a father who fathers well. And and he uses every conceivable moment, every kind of means to have us to be the sons who are more and more like him. Every father wants sons to look like him, especially the heavenly father. I think that leads us to our last point. What is the end to which God is disciplining us? We've considered the father's discipline of the son... We've remembered that the Father disciplines us as sons. And we've seen how we're to submit to the Father's discipline. Now, lastly, what is the result? What does it all lead to? And we see that answer in verses 10 and 11. For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The end result? The purpose for why God disciplines us? It's our holiness. He's training us to be children who produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And as we submit and, and subject ourselves to God's faithful discipline, as verse 9 calls us to, within God and His sovereign, and in, And in his effectual grace begins to mature us. He trains us and we grow in godliness. And how often though are we tempted, right? How often are we tempted in the midst of those trials to in fact shrink back and escape the pain of God's discipline? The author reminds us, doesn't he, that for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. The loving hand of God which chisels away at our sinful hearts using just perfectly the hardships and trials and pains of this world to conform us more to Christ, that, that process is painful. And yes, if I think if we're honest, everyone in here would say it, we'd rather grow in godliness without the pain rather than with the pain. Do you remember what we sang this, this morning? Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answered prayer for grace and faith. Instead of this, he made me feel the the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. That's not fun, but it is God's way. What does he say in verse 5? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't take your situation lightly. Look at the trial you're in now. Consider the suffering that you're going through. Feel the full weight of all the waves that are crashing over you in this life and look at it with the seriousness of eternity weighing in the balance. Will you walk through this trial, this time of discipline as one seeking to escape and and get out from under it? You're missing out on so much. Or will you walk through it knowing that in God's hands this very situation, in all its difficulty is God's loving means to draw you closer to himself and producing in you the fruit of holiness. Last week I made the somewhat startling statement that there is no heaven without holiness. I say startling because I received some feedback on that very point. Are you saying, pastor, that our good works get us into heaven? Well, in a sense, yes. Now, of course, I am not denying that we are justified by grace alone and Christ alone by our faith alone. I believe with all my heart that glorious truth. And when I come before the Father on that last day, the only ground I will rest on is Christ crucified. In him alone, by faith alone. That's where my salvation is found and secured. But we cannot, and I don't think anybody wants to, but we need to be reminded, we cannot use that glorious truth to undermine or take lightly God's call to us to live holy lives. Indeed, as the author of Hebrews will say in verse 14, and we'll look at this next week, we must strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our holiness is essential to life, essential to eternal life. And here's the amazing truth of our passage this morning. God is producing within us that very holiness. He's training us through discipline to live those godly lives. That word train in verse 11 is where we get our our modern word, gymnasium, from. God's discipline is training us and, and getting us spiritually fit to be able to enter in to the holiness of heaven. John Owen, commenting on this very passage, says that there will be no discipline in heaven, nor will there be any in hell. In heaven, there will be no need for discipline, because all will be holy, nor in hell, because all will be completely given over to Judgment. But God is so graciously disciplining us now because we are ever in need of more holiness, the fruit of which only comes through God's gracious training. Friends, as we continue to walk together through the ups and downs of this life, enduring together through every trial, my encouragement is for us to do so with holy obedience and joy, looking first to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross he obeyed the Father and endured the trial of the cross. And let us consider him under the discipline of the Father, suffering as that man of sorrows, following after him and in his footsteps, we as adopted sons and daughters, now under God's loving hand of discipline. That's the way he loves us. Let's pray.
1: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we welcome your discipline. We don't claim to always understand your discipline, but we do have a sincere desire to grow in holiness and righteousness. We want to become more and more like Jesus Christ, who is not just the supreme example of holiness and righteousness, but Father, he is your righteousness. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be better able to choose what is right and to say no to evil. Lord, increase our desire for this. Increase our desire for righteousness. And Lord, we pray that you, who alone can do so, would continue working to make us perfect, to teach us and to train us, even if that means going through things in this life that we don't like and are painful. Help us to see suffering and hardship as one of the ways you choose to grow us, to increase our obedience and knowledge of you. Lord, let us be a church that suffers well together, that walk beside one another in life's trials, living life together with compassion, serving one another, and reminding each other constantly of your son Jesus, who, like us, suffered in order to be made perfect, but unlike us, suffered the hostility of sinners, Suffered your holy punishment against sin on that cross that we will never endure. Remind us of this so that we might not grow weary of saying no to sin. Lord, let our humble lives bring you glory as you complete the work you've begun and are continually doing in our lives to increase our godliness and holiness and ultimately to bring us home to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.